This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, you, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. All right, sitting down today with PD, my boss, who I used to work with um, a number of years ago, but I've now reflected on my life and all aspects of it and pulled it to pieces and put it back together and actually realised that, Peter, you were a massive impact on my life. And I was at a turning point in my career from the, in the accounting space where I worked for a, uh, one of the big six international accounting firms and I was so in, disenchanted with what I was seeing and the way that my career was going and, and I just felt like, you know, I'd done all the qualifications and I was getting to a point in my career where I was very unhappy and I felt like it was going nowhere. I'd also gone out at that point in my life and I'd tried to set up my own business and it was tough and you had a bit of a, a need in your practice for someone like me to plug in. Now, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritties of all of the intricacies of what that all meant, but I just want to open up and expand on today all of the things which you introduced into my life which had a big big impact on me so I think I'll start by just talking about what a typical day meant for me um, in what I saw you doing so if we rewind the clock to all those years ago um, I used to see that you get up very early in the morning you jump in your Porsche you drive to a park. If it was warm, you'd take the roof off. Never have the roof off during business hours because it's unprofessional. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Um, you would arrive at the park in North Adelaide and you'd be wearing a tank top. I didn't used to see this because this was before I got to the office, but you'd be wearing a tank top and some running pants and you would run around an oval there as a sort of a fitness regime. How many times a week did you used to do this? Well, at least three times a week, once on the weekend and also on, normally on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it was easy for me to do that because we owned the gymnasium uh, on the other side of the park. So it, uh, we were able to do all the changing or whatever needed to be done, the showering, etc., which was so easy. And because we owned it, we didn't have to pay any monthly fee. So that was even better. But you, you had the gym, but it was, it was more like a personal fitness regime for yourself to keep. I think you'd said to me once that you went out once with Chris, your son, and you tried to kick the football or play cricket with him or something, and, and you were out of breath and you thought, wow, I'm only in my 40s, I need to get fitter, mm. and that started a whole fitness regime. Correct. We, we lived at that stage straight across the road from the Adelaide Parklands, and uh, Chris said, Dad, let's go over where the goals are and we can have some kicks. So uh, Chris was uh, kicking for goals, and I was showing him how fast I could run to pick the ball up and shoot it back to him. That lasted for around about four or five minutes because I was out of breath and totally unfit, did not realise how unfit I was. And, that's, and that uh, needed to be fixed, which was why I started doing these, uh, these runs and, uh, under a coach, incidentally, three times, a, three times a week. And with the gym straight across the road, which we owned, it was just all so easy. It's become a part of my life. And even to this day, I go running three times a week. So just going back to, were you doing long distance sprints around the Oval? Like how many metres would you like to travel, knock over in a morning? Well, I ended up participating in, in the, uh, the Australian and the World Masters Games. I might add in the World Masters Games, I was a distant last. <laughs> but in the, I managed to win a medal or two in the Australian Masters Games. And what I would do, I, you, you, you're told by your coach what you're going to be good at or what you're going to be least bad at. Mm. And uh, I ended up doing 100s, 200s and 400s until I, um, unfortunately, getting ready for, for the games which were on at that time in Adelaide, I yanked a, um, a hamstring off the bone and it was very, very nasty. I went to the physio, to the doctor, and I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you've got two choices. He said, I can either uh, sew it up for you, put it back in order, or you can let it just develop itself over a period of time and it'll come back and you'll have, you'll have reasonable use of it. And uh, 
I said, well, how do I make that decision? And he said to me, and mind you, at this age, at this stage I was about 45, 50, he said, are you likely to be chosen for the Crows footy team uh, next week? And I said, that's unlikely. And he said, right, well, you know what you've got to do. Just let it, let it fix. So there's so much I want to talk about. So, okay. But after that, you used to basically have a shower at the gym, come over to the office, get dressed in your suit, put the tie on, uh, unlock all the doors, sweep the front veranda with a dustpan and broom. Yes. Uh, and then the first thing you would do is check your bank accounts on your laptop. Always, every morning. Mm. And I think you'd print out a sheet with all your bank yep. accounts there I and did. put it alongside the laptop. And also the gymnasium, of course, or any other any other business that I might have been involved with. I would always reconcile the bank accounts every day to keep a keep a check on what was what was going on. I still do this hmm. today. Uh, okay, so there's so much I want to talk about, but let's just go back to when you were a child and you were growing up. Where where did you live? I lived. Um, well, I, I lived. I was born in Melbourne, and I was sent to Melbourne Grammar because my mother was sick, and my father was at that stage the managing director of Penfolds Wines, and the head office was in was in Melbourne. So I was sent to to Melbourne Grammar uh, for a fortnight while my mother got better. And uh, a funny thing about that is that it wasn't all. A few years later, I received a, a letter from Melbourne Grammar. Uh, at this stage, I'm in my 50s, 60s, uh, saying that uh, all of the boys that left on the, the, the left in 1949 were now convening for the 50-year reunion, and uh, and would I be there? I rang the lady to say that when I left Melbourne Grammar, I was five years old, and I didn't think I'd have a lot in common with <laughs> with everybody else. She nevertheless very politely invited me, and I said, "Look, the plane fare and everything else, I, I you know I appreciate, but no, thank you." But anyway, back to back to Adelaide. Went to school in Adelaide, uh, the same school that that your children go to, and grew up. And my parents became very friendly with with uh, Sir Donald Bradman. And Can I just interrupt for a moment? Yeah. Didn't your father pass away when you were only quite young? Thirteen. Thirteen. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in the sc- early school uh, muster at at Saints, and uh, the headmaster, amongst other things, said, "Would Peter Dunham please stand up?" And I stood up, and he said, uh, "Would you mind going outside? There's somebody wanting to talk to you." I went outside. This is all quite, you know, strange. And I was told that my father had just died. Um, at the age of 70, he died from throat cancer and um, I would be taken home to be with my mother and also sitting in the same room, not unexpectedly, with Sir Donald Bradman because he and he and my father and my mother and his wife Jessie were, became very, very close friends. In fact, his son later became my best man when I got married. That's John Bradman. So, sorry, I need to interrupt this yeah. because there's a lot happening here. Were you? Was he... At school, the day that you were notified by the teachers, was who at school? Sedan. No, no, no. He was at home. He was at home waiting for with you. My, yes, at home waiting for me with my mother. Right. So you went home escorted by a teacher from school. Uh, effectively, yes, I was escorted certainly. And walked in. I mean, this would have been no surprise if it was throat cancer because your dad would yeah, have deteriorated over a period of yeah, time. Yeah, I, I was a slow developer, and I mean that quite sensibly. I, I was. I was a slow developer. And I, I'm almost ashamed to say that when I was told that my father had died, it didn't hit me necessarily. In fact, when my mother said, Dad's just died, uh, I said, oh, okay, well, can I go and play with Brent and Sherbet up the road? And she said, not today. Now, that when I look back on that, that indicates to me that it was too much to handle. Right. And... Uh, but ultimately, um, my life took uh, an incredible streak, largely because well, for one of the reasons, because I knew Sir Donald Bradman so well. So, did he really step into a mentoring role Absolutely. at an early Absolutely. at an early age? Mm. And what did that relationship develop into with you and him? Like, how often would you see him? What sort of influence did he have on well, your life? Well, we lived in the house at Ten Penfold Road, McGill, which was the official house of the manager of. Penfolds Wines 
And when my father died, we were told, well, look, you've got all the time you need, but you're going to have to leave and go somewhere else. So Donald found a house that backed onto his house at number two Holden Street, Kensington Park. And that house needed uh, some attention. It needed all of the, the walls inside repainted. So Donald put on his painting gear, which he was very keen to wear, and he was the one who came in and scraped all the calcimine off, uh, cleaned everything up, and then painted the inside of the house for us. His hobby was... was and his own house at 2 Holden Street, Kensington Park, of course, was beautifully painted all the time. That was his hobby, painting the house. And he painted ours. I'll just add one other thing. He, when my... Well, I stood for my intermediate... And I passed all the subjects in my intermediate, and the assumption was I'd go on to leaving, as it was called in those days, and then maybe leaving, leaving honours. My father, uh, my, uh, Sir Donald, uh, said to my mother, no, Peter's leaving. And my mother said, why? And he said, because he's talented with uh, figures and various other areas that, and, and law, which fronts onto being a chartered accountant. And to become a chartered accountant at this stage, all you needed to have passed was your intermediate. He knew the next year they were lifting that to leaving. And ultimately, uh, I would have to pass whatever exams were necessary. My mother took me to school and told the headmaster this, and the headmaster said, well, I can't imagine, will you forgive me for saying it this way, but I can't imagine why Peter wouldn't pass his, uh, his leaving quite easily. And my mother said, well, Sir Donald's told me that um, he's leaving. And the headmaster actually said to me, uh, I have a scholarship that I can award and I'm happy to give half of that scholarship to Peter if he will come back for this next year, uh, if that makes a difference. My mother went home to Sir Donald and, uh, and he had a, a profound effect on her thinking and he said, no, he's leaving. So I left and I put in two applications for jobs in the city I think my school might have helped me in those days, which I don't think it helps as much these days, but the old school tie, if we're going to go back all those years ago, helped. And uh, I, I came into this uh, firm and found that three of the four partners there were old scholars of St Peter's. Uh, that wouldn't happen these days, but it helped then, and that was part of the effect of uh, Sir Donald's influence on me. Am okay. I talking too much? No, no, no. I, I, I'm just not sure exactly what part I want to pursue in this at this point. But um, <clears throat> did w when he was playing cricket, was there ever a time where he organised tickets or he made you know special mention of you at one of the games or you, you know did you ever get invited to the club rooms with him or anything like that? No, because I think I'm right in saying that his last game they'd ever played was in 1948. Um, he, uh, I was only uh, four years old at that stage, so no, that wasn't uh, one of the interesting uh, points that I would make. But what did happen was that I think it was, was it, his name was Klein, he was a fast bowler and he was no-balled, this is an Australian fast bowler, he was no-balled on a number of occasions by the umpires and it became a great argument as to whether he was in fact throwing or whether he was bowling. And I was round at the Bradman household one day, either playing billiards with Shirley or doing something with John, and I wandered upstairs and just wandered into his study, and he sat me down and said, watch this. And he showed me, it wouldn't, you wouldn't call it a film. Well, you, I suppose it was a film in a way, but it was slow motion, slide by slide by slide by slide. And he said to me... Um, do you think he's throwing? And at that stage, I was uh, still at school. So I admitted that really, I didn't think I was the one to answer that question. I just, you know, I, I didn't know the difference as to where your elbow's got to be, etc., etc., etc. He then put something on my head as we were looking at these things. He put something on my head. And when I looked in the mirror, it was an Australian cricket cap. And uh, it was, uh, it only said on the front, Advance Australia. It didn't give a date. Later it was found that that was in fact his first ever cap that was awarded to him in his first test match in Brisbane. And in that particular year, uh, 
the they didn't put the date on the cap. They only put Advance Australia on there. And that was one of the ways that they determined that this was definitely a genuine Bradman cap. So I said, that looks pretty good. And he said, it looks very good. It's yours. Back at that time, no one realised how valuable something like that was. No, I used to go out and when there was a fun game of cricket on, I'd wear it. I became famous for it. It ended up hanging in the shed. <laughs> well, I remember Chris and Jamie, your boys, telling me that when they, whenever they had a backyard game, they'd grab the hat yeah. and wear it backwards or whatever. Right. And uh, where's the hat? It's in the shed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Nowadays we know that um, I think it's a very valuable hat. In fact, it's the one that he wore during the Invincibles test, isn't it? I can't answer that. I, I, I'm not sure when that was. Um, what I can tell you is that um, I was asked another long story, which I won't tell you, but just I will go quickly through it. Having gone to a place called Casimir for lunch on a number of occasions, I ended up meeting the then uh, head of the Bradman Museum in Adelaide. And uh, I asked him how it was going. He said, very well, there was only one problem that they didn't have a Bradman cap. And I said, oh, I've got one of those. And he, <laughs> and he, he uh, didn't believe me. And finally, I said, I can prove it to you. It's time. I'll bring it in for you tomorrow. So we met again the next day at Casimir. And I showed him this hat. And uh, he looked a bit scant of it not totally believing about it. But uh, he went away and he came back. He said, rang me, he said, lunch again? I said, well, let's do lunch again. Third day. And he walked in. At that stage, of the cap, he was wearing white clubbers when he brought the cap in. <laughs> and he said, he said, I've checked this out with the powers that be. Uh, I worried about it because it only said Advanced Australia. But that was, as I've now been told by all and sundry, uh, was, the, uh, was the only year in which Advanced Australia was the only indication on the cap, not having not having a date. He asked me if he could if he could uh, put it into the museum, and I said certainly. And uh, he asked me how long could he keep it, and I said, well, why don't we make it five years? He said, why don't we make it ten? I said, why don't we make it seven? And he said, done. It was then insured by the government for a half a million dollars. Wow, this is something that was put on your head. Yeah. At Stop me if I'm talking to no, you. No, 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 this is great. Now, we've got to get back to accounting here yep. because let's go back to when I first joined your firm. You you had someone who was in the same role, you know, support back office sort of role um, that was the role that I was going to fill. I think his name was John. Uh, yes, that's correct. And he had been diagnosed with brain cancer? He had. Has he since passed away? I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm not sure it was brain cancer. It was certainly cancer. But in looking for somebody at that stage, I rang the Institute of Chartered Accountants and they gave me his name. Right. I rang him uh, and I uh, met him once and I said, well, this is the deal. If you're happy, I would like to take you on. And he said, yes, I would very much like to do it because he was worried that he wouldn't get another job. I might add that that was one of the days when I thought, with you being the one exception, Kim, Thank you. Uh, I thought that hiring an older man had its advantages because they were always more reliable. Uh, and I'm just I'm pointing out that you were reliable. but in, and, and not only was he reliable, but he wasn't about to leave and go to another firm or go out on his own. Right. And that was one of the reasons why I took him on. And I had a very good relationship with him for a number of years until finally his wife convinced him to retire. He did apparently, he had got over the cancer in that time, as, as I understand it. I haven't spoken to him for years. Okay. Well, I, I had big shoes to fill because he had ongoing relationships with your clients that I needed to step into the shoes of and carry on and continue and do a good job. Now, when I came to work for you, I'd always wanted to work in the accounting profession. I'd just left Coopers and Lybran. And I felt at that point that I was actually quite good at my job. Um, however, there's a hierarchy in those big organisations. And when I went and had my annual review with my manager, he had said to me, be patient. You're on $23,000 a year. Um, we're giving you a $1,000 pay rise. And these things all take time. You're doing a great job. Um, he did compare me to one of the, the girls that was in my sort of group. 
and she was billing more chargeable hours than me. So he was saying, well, you're not quite as good as her. But I thought that I was, in other ways, much better than her. But for one reason or another, I felt like that I was going nowhere, that I was um, going a bit stale in the position that I was in, and so I wanted to go out into commerce. I did that. I realised that I was never going to be my own boss in commerce, and I worked for a retirement village, um, writing checks, using Myob. It was a great role, but I didn't find it very challenging. But I wanted to get back into the profession, and I'd decided to set up my own practice. I needed some part-time work. I came and saw you. I sat down with you. It was a referral from a mutual friend who was sort of like your IT person at that time. And this um, meeting was conducted in your office. And I remember going into your office. You were a sole practitioner. I didn't see the Porsche out the back at that stage. <laughs> I didn't know who you were, but you were, wear- you were well-dressed. You were in a suit. You were in an office which looked like you owned. We sat down around a coffee table in sort of two armchairs and we talked about rates and what I could do. And, and then you mentioned your software and I happened to have only used that in my old firm um, two or three years ago, but nothing had really changed. So it was a it was a natural fit. I think originally because of John leaving, there was a bit of a hole in the workflow and I think that you'd had some – that position had been vacant for six months. So I stepped into that position and then all of a sudden I got to know you more and I found that you lived this sort of like – it was almost like a James Bond sort of lifestyle. Whoa. <laughs> well, when I, when, but when I say that – and that, you seen that's the not, Aston Martin I've got parked out the back? <laughs> well, I didn't know too many other accountants that had a property portfolio and drove a Porsche. And once you'd been for your run, you came in, checked the bank balances, rang back the clients – and your style and technique was very um, different to what I'd seen before. You had great relationship with your clients. Um, you're obviously doing well and you knew what you were doing. And it was, an, it was a, a major learning opportunity for me being mentored by you. You probably didn't realize you were doing it at the time. But I tried to copy everything that you were doing to the point where I tried to act like you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I and I'd, I'd eat my lunch. You'd be out at lunch at, with with clients, whining and dining. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I'd be eating my fritz sandwiches in your carport, drooling over your Porsche, <laughs> which was parked there. <laughs> and I know, looking back, it's funny how you know life moves in certain ways. But I've been out and I've bought exactly the same car. I still own it. Yeah. And it was just a different shade color to yours. Absolutely. But every Christmas party that we'd go to every year, you would. Let me drive the Porsche. And it was one of the greatest days of my life. (laughs) We would always go and visit the clients on, I think it was Christmas Eve, and we'd be driving the Porsche and we'd always take the back streets and I'd be going as fast as I possibly could in this machine and you'd be sitting in the passengers, I think, (laughs) braced in this, you know, holding on to all of the handrails that you could get your hands on. So that you, because I was obviously driving faster than I probably should have been. Anyway, let's get to, let's talk about this lunch. Now, lunch was a big part of being an accountant back there, back then. From my recollection, you went to Casimir every day for lunch. Um, most days for lunch, unless my the client that I was going to go with uh, wanted particularly to go somewhere else. But let me just let me just give a little bit of justification for why I went out for lunch yes, all the time. Yes. The justification was that yes, I did get up early in the morning, and yes, I did go running. And then I had a shower, and then I went to the office. And the thing that I always forgot to do was to have breakfast. So I'd never, I've never had breakfast. In fact, to this day, I don't have breakfast. To this day, I still don't have breakfast. Now, I'm told by all of the, uh, the, the, the experts, it's a bad thing to do. Mm. And yet I found that, I heard an expert the other day saying that if you, if you really want to lose weight or keep your weight down, then uh, eat something for dinner at night, have nothing else the next day until lunchtime, and that does certain things within the, the your body mm. which burns up all the fat and I, all I can say is this is this is a professor from Brisbane it's worked for me to this day I never have breakfast I can't recommend it because so many people think I'm wrong but all I can say is it's worked for me but that's my justification for going out to lunch I was hungry but a fritz sandwich would not have been enough <laughs> but there's more to it than that because you saw it as a networking opportunity for your blue chip clients that you would 
nearly always have lunch with one of them and you would do business as you were having lunch. Absolutely. Yeah. And you'd always start with, correct me if I'm wrong, French champagne. Uh, not always start with French champagne. There were the days <laughs> There were the days when I did. I might also add that another reason for having lunch with a client is that I'd quite often have the, another client would come along and therefore there would be a networking setup operating between those two people. Right. So the, the justification, but yes, I'm a lover of French champagne. Um, I I would love to uh, I would love to drink it more than I do, but always on special occasions. I always come up with a Bollinger, which of course James Bond always drinks, or a Verve Clicquot, or a Moet, or whatever it might be. So yes, I love it. So and I remember that at your Christmas party, which you used to have at your house. I'd always say, is there any French champagne around? <laughs> yeah. And you would always have the staff from the gym there as well. And yeah. so cleverly you would weave your way through the people and make your way to me with a bottle of French champagne. Then you'd always put it back. I could I'd watch <laughs> in a special location in the fridge so that no one else would notice. <laughs> but amongst ourselves we would enjoy it. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun. But so entree would always be capaccio. Yeah, capaccio. I love capaccio. Cap- that is, in fact, raw raw meat with a beautiful uh, dressing over the top of it uh, and they made this fantastic capoccio which was lovely. It wasn't too filling but it was fabulous for the entree. Well, I fell in love with it because we would have, the plate would come out, there would be such, there would be like two mils, three mils thick, this beautiful fillet of steak mm. that would be on a plate and then there'd be a piece of, a couple of pieces of toast I think. No, it uh, would have been herb bread. Herb bread and lemon. Yes. And we'd grab the lemon yes. and we'd sprinkle it all over the capaccio. Absolutely. And then we'd carve it up yep. and take as large a possible <laughs> portion of it because it'd be so tender it'd melt yeah. in your mouth. Yeah. I don't think for the first couple of months that I would, well, going back to whenever I got invited to the lunches, which would usually be because a client would be dragging me along yeah. and inviting me. Yeah. And you'd always pick up the tab, which I always appreciated. <laughs> but then I, I, I'd see what would happen and I'd have so much fun there. And we'd have the capaccio, and so I was introduced to it, and I fell in love with it. Main course. Um, I now was, I remember it would have a bug at either end, a Morton uh, Bay bug. Yes, uh, it would be it would be a, a special steak. And I've forgotten what they called it now, but there'd be a bug at either end of this fillet steak. Very rare, very rare. Or they made fabulous spaghetti bolognese. And uh, that was, I think that was probably it. Out of those two, especially with the capoccio beforehand, uh, there was fabulous food at that restaurant. Oh, I really enjoyed it. It was incredible. Yeah. It's since been closed down, sadly. But now we're building up to the most important part of the meal. This is, yeah. this, this is the wine. Yeah. There would always be a mystery bottle of red of course. on the table, yeah. which would be a bottle of red wine with a tablecloth wrapped around it. Yes. And you and whoever was at the table had to guess the type of wine that it was, the year and the region. Well, yeah, there were several steps. The, in fact, the, the gentleman who ran the restaurant would do this for me. I didn't know what it was either. And he'd bring it out and he'd put it in the middle of the table and he was the judge. And he would actually have a glass of it. Yes, absolutely. Which you're paying for. Yes. Did you notice that? I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> I did. But the question, he would all be given a sample of, of this bottle of wine and then he would ask the question, okay, um, what sort of grape is it? Is it? Well, firstly, is it a blend or is it a straight wine? And some would say blend and some would say straight. And he would tell us how to tell the difference ultimately after we'd gone through the whole well, How do you tell the difference? Well, because you can tell whether you can tell the difference between a Shiraz, for example, and a Cabernet Sauvignon, and they just have a different taste. Shiraz uh, has more of a peppery, a peppery uh, uh, taste. The Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't. The Cabernet Sauvignon uh, leaves a certain tang on the on the top of your thro- or top of your fa- oh, top, so, sorry top of your mouth. And without going into all that detail, he taught us. He taught us. Um, how you could tell whether it was a what sort of grape it was, whether it was a mixture, what sort of year it was. And if you look at hold the wine up and look at it, if it's got a brown meniscus, well then it's an older wine. If it hasn't, then it's a younger wine. And then you'd have to pick the uh, the region. And he would he would probably ask us, do you think it's a Western Australian wine, South Australian wine, or a Victorian wine? And none of us had the foggiest clue. 
which, which what it was. But he would then say, okay, let's say it's a South Australian wine. What area do you think it has come from? And he would, he would allow us to guess between the Barossa, uh, the, the Southern Vales, uh, and uh, the Coonawarra, and Clare Valley, and uh, without going into all the detail, which we weren't going to know, we, we learned to have a reasonable guess as to where it came from. And uh, I learned a lot about wine. Of course, my father, having been managing director of Penfolds Wines, uh, and having put in front of me, even at the age of 13, a thimble full of wine to see what I thought of it. And I, to this day, I thank him for that because while a lot of my mates started getting drunk on beer as soon as they could when they left school, uh, I didn't find that necessary because I'd, I'd been allowed to taste wine, etc., and taste beer as well, very, very, in very, very, very moderate, you know, uh, amounts. But I thought that led me to be able to enjoy it rather than get drunk on it, if I can put it that way. Anyway, that's the story of uh, lunch with the clients. And the, the clients loved it. They loved it. And so apparently did you. <laughs> well, th- this is the thing. When you go to university, uh, I think the lecturers in the last sort of year sort of say, well, those that go on to be accountants will be wearing the pinstripe suits and have the long lunches. Now, well, that all died. Is that true? They yes, did, they it? did that. No. Well, I didn't see too many pinstripe suits, but, but yeah. because they were sort of out of fashion. But I noticed that you wore a suit every day. Why is that? Oh, because I believe that uh, I had to uphold a certain standard. Uh, and things may be different these days. A lot of accountants these days are having casual days or they're having tireless days. Um, but at that stage, um, I, in fact, when I first became part of a firm of chartered accountants, we had to wear a hat. That's a fact. When I first joined my first uh, office, I was 15 and a half. And they said, right, you've got to buy a hat. I had to put a hat on. Whenever I left to go to a client's office, everybody had to wear a hat. Like a top hat? Oh, just a, what, a normal a normal hat, like you'd see at the... Many, many years ago, you would see at the... Uh, at the cricket? Yeah, that's right. I know the, the hat you're talking about. No, I had to wear a hat. And and, and a, uh, a just a suit jacket or is it... A suit. And a suit. You have to wear a suit, mm. white shirt, reasonable tie and a hat. And so when you think that I had to wear a hat, uh, it was quite a come down only having to wear a suit without the hat, which of course eventually happened. And you'd find nobody in Adelaide at the moment, no chartered account would be walking around wearing a hat. It's just, it's a thing of the past. It doesn't happen anymore. Well, I try to wear a tie every day and a suit. And I think that being in small business, I think as a sole practitioner, which you always were and I am, um, I, I think that uh, people do value, do judge you when they meet you within the first 30 seconds on, on, on who you are and what you stand for. And the tie reflects, you know, your, your commitment to the culture, your commitment to style, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. I might add, just for the, I don't know why this has suddenly come into my mind, but Stuart Coburn was a leading uh, business uh, journalist at the Advertiser uh, at this particular time, and at the same time that I went into my into my office for the or into the office for the, for the first week, there was an article in the paper, and to this day I can remember it, written by Stuart Coburn, and it said, amongst all the high priests of today's affluent society, none is more powerful nor more persuasively influential. Than the chartered accountant, and I cut that out. And it was a fact that chartered accountants have always been held in very high esteem, particularly in those days. Do you like the quote? I love the quote. Hmm. Uh, still very true today. I, I love it when you go to a uh, well. I go to financial planning conferences, and they always say, "Oh, you'll need to get your clients to check these figures with their accountant." It's like, you know, I, I always view it as we're always the most trusted advisor for our clients. Oh. Um, yeah. Now, can we just go back? Because you, you were a partner in a large firm at one stage, <coughs> I was. weren't you? Fourth largest firm in Adelaide. What was it called? Well, in those days it was called Neil, Neil, Buick & Co. But what then happened was that you had to get bigger or you had to have uh, affiliations in other states and preferably overseas if you were going to hold 
the sorts of audits that we had in those days, the Savings Bank of South Australia, the Bank of Adelaide, the National Bank, uh, Chrysler, and there's a few of the very large audits that we had. And um, there were four firms. Uh, Pete Moak Mitchell was then by another name. They've since become... Uh, KPMG. That's right. And you've got Peter Price Waterhouse. Uh, there was us and there was... Uh, starts with a D, you can't think of it. Deloitte. Deloitte's, that's right. And, and the four firms later took on all these affiliations. One of our problems was that we had very old, the senior partners were very old and didn't do it as well as the others did. And we slowly lost the big clients because we were slowly going downhill because the older partners were not as progressive as they should have been. And uh, I became, after the older older partners retired, I became a partner, but still found that being a partner in a large partnership is not all it's cracked up to be. Or that was my view. Uh, uh, just to expand on that, please, was that because there was too long hours or you were underpaid or it was too much risk? Why would you say that? Well, certainly in those days, the, the partners earning the most money were the older ones and the partners earning the least money were the... Um, you know, with the, uh, the the younger ones, as I was, and while you were told that don't worry, when we retire, you know, you'll be in our position, that was all very well, but how long was it going to be before they retired? The other thing that happened was there are arguments in partnerships, and it can be over remuneration, it can be over a number of things, uh, and it can be over the, the number of chargeable hours that you, are, that you are producing, but for one reason or another, it is extraordinary how many of the partnerships, let alone the larger partnerships, end up splitting up, sometimes in two or in three, sometimes just partners dropping off and going somewhere else because they weren't happy with the arrangements. Um, it, can, it can be due to all sorts of things. And I, I always felt that I wanted to run my own show um, and uh, I left the partnership with some clients, not a huge number, but I was able to attract some more. And uh, I certainly wouldn't do it any, any other way than the way that I've done it. The other thing I would mention to, to you is I always felt, and I think this paid off for me, that whatever you're doing, whether you're in a gymnasium or whether you are a chartered accountant or whether you are uh, buying shops or whatever it is, I always believed that it was better to try and buy the premises that you were in rather than rent the premises you were in. Because when you pay the rent, it's a dollar you will never see again. When you pay the the, uh, the mortgage and eventually pay it off, all the money comes back to you. So I see this now with most accountants in Adelaide. Uh, they all rent. Now their offices look swanky. It's amazing. You move in there. You don't have to have any money. The uh, landlord often does an amazing fit out for you, um, overlooking Adelaide Oval in some skyscraper and... But I don't really get that because that's not the way you saw it or the way that I see it. I think that when I retire, uh, a large component of my superannuation or retirement policy is going to be the profits that I make on the building that I'm actually currently occup mm. occupying. Mm. That's right. I agree with that entirely. Did, so when you left KPMG, as it's known today, did you move out straight away and buy a property or did it take some time? <laughs> uh, I moved out straight away. And I did for a very short period of time rent uh, some offices uh, from a friend of mine or from a friend who was part of a partnership on Green Hill Road, but only long enough so that I could find the right property that I wanted, which I did at 14 Melbourne Street, North Adelaide, which used to be the office of the, the uh, which consul was it? Austrian. The, the Austrian consul, that's right. Mm. And I thought it was the perfect size for what I wanted. And uh, I bought it, and I can assure you it was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. As I, as I would say, that would apply to anything else that I got involved in. The gymnasium. What? We, bought the gym, we bought the gymnasium. What, why did you like Melbourne Street as a location? Because there's not a lot of other, other accountants on Melbourne Street. It's more of a retail precinct. Uh, well, there were, there were a number of... Uh, when I first went into that building... Um, there were a number of other chartered accountants or, or accountants or whatever you like in, in that street. Um, when you say it's retail, I'm not sure that's exactly right. It used to be retail, uh, but then... Uh, well, there's a lot of restaurants and... 
there there are, and it's amazing how many of those go broke. Mm. If there was one thing I will never, ever again do in my life, it is to own a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, so this is leading to other thoughts in my mind. So when you bought Melbourne Street, you loved the precinct. It was sort of yeah. down the other end of where all the sort of action was. Mm. So I think it was sort of like ahead of its time. Plenty of room for parking. And plenty of room for parking out the back, which we all loved. Yep. And we'd use them when we'd go and watch and cricket. And parking out the front. And was parking out the front. For the clients. And there was that pot plant out the front that you always used to water, which was owned by the council. <laughs> That's did, right. Did yeah. you ever put a new plant in there, or they always put the plants? Uh, well, my wife at that stage uh, advised me. She said, how often do you water that plant? And I said, I can't remember the last time I watered it. And she said, that, that probably accounts for the fact that it is now dead. <laughs> and so she. 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 And would go out, would come out with the, you know, with the, uh, some potting mix and various other things and buy something beautiful and put it in and it was sensational. She even came around to water it three times a week. As a and the council never said anything? No, they didn't say a word. Well, they wouldn't. Why would they? I was beautifying the... You know, well, the, well, let's just describe this. This was a massive pot. It was like about a two, metre. Two massive pots. Two massive pots. Yeah. And they were about a metre by a metre That's by right. a metre. That's right. Yep. <laughs> right out the front of your office. Absolutely. Okay. But over time, you and this love for property, you started buying up other retail spaces on Melbourne Street. Didn't yeah, you? I did. I did. The main reason for that was that the gymnasium that we had was expanding madly and Anne kept saying to me, I need more, nor I just can't put them anywhere. Where am I going to put them? So we ended up buying the two properties behind the gym, eventually the one next to the gym, which which multiplied uh, or quadrupled the amount of room we had for the gym. And I, we also bought two other properties uh, in Melbourne Street um, because we just needed more space. And did you approach those owners of the properties on Melbourne Street privately? Yes. Or were they, they weren't? All private. How did you, like, so I remember one of them was the banana room. Which banana was, room, I, yes, the, I, I'd been sent out of a meeting with the, uh, the board or just the manager and Anna myself. They said, look, we need more space. Go and find it now. So I went out and I walked around into Melbourne Street and I turned right. I came across a place that was closed and hadn't been looked after for a while. It was an old shop. It, it was an old shop. It was called the Banana Room and an old lady owned it. And this old lady um, uh, was making a living out of buying all sorts of gear from Her Majesty's Theatre, you know, all dresses and uniforms and all sorts of things. And what it was called the banana room and people would go there to look at this huge array of secondhand stuff that had been used by people in plays and, you know, operas, etc. Oh, etc. Et secondhand clothing. Yeah. But it but what had happened was the doors were closed. It was no longer operating. Why? She'd run out of money. Well, I I got somebody to look up who owned the building and uh, one of my real estate Friends told me who owned the building, and so I rang, rang this number, and I spoke to a lady. She said, "Yes, can I help you?" And I said, "Yes, my name is Peter, and I've, uh, I'm um, interested. You have a building, and it doesn't seem to be doing much. Would you be interested in selling it?" And she said, "This was just plain luck." She said, "You're not going to believe what I was doing when the phone rang." And I said, "What is that?" She said, "I was looking up what real estate agents there were that I could speak to to put it on the market." I said, right, do you realise how much money you're going to save if you deal directly with me? And she said, uh, yes, I can understand that. And uh, she said, what do you think it's worth? And I said, I think it's worth $210,000. And she said, I think it's worth $250,000. And I bought it for $220,000. In hindsight... Yeah, it worth, just, today yeah, it'd be just worth luck, just it, luck. But it'd be worth eight hundred thousand. I sold it recently for eight hundred and fifty thousand. Eight hundred and fifty thousand, there you go. How many years did you have it? Oh twenty. Mm. Mm. But it was a great property. It was a terrific property for what we wanted. Mm. We didn't have to do anything to the inside because it was one great enormous inside area, there were no walls to knock down, everything was perfect. All we had to do was put up mirrors along one side to make it look as if it was twice as big as it was. And it's amazing what you can do with mirrors you know, mm. on one mm. wall to make mm. it look bigger than it was. And, and uh, we, we used to have regular classes there organised by the gym. Now, if we go back to your practice, and it was a successful, thriving practice, and I, I was 
caught up in all of that when I was working there and I absolutely loved going to work every day. You, what, what was the importance, and, I, and I'll, I'll mention this, because you had a close relationship with a banker. Yes. Uh, at the time, and you also had a very close relationship with a lawyer. Yes. I have similar relationships with di- obviously different people now, and those people are both that you had relationships with both retired, are both retired now. However, what was the importance? What I, I seem to recall that you'd speak to your lawyer every day. Well, I don't know about every day, but certainly because my clients were doing things, they were expanding, they were buying things, they coming to agreements with people, and I would say, right, um, the one lesson I'm going to teach you is that you never sign anything whether having it, having it either at least checked by a lawyer or preferably prepared by a lawyer. And so I was able to refer a lot of work to, to that lawyer. Uh, he appreciated that and he looked after me for many, many years. And uh, ultimately he retired. He got cancer actually and mm-hmm. he retired later on. And I've since come across another one, or a couple actually, that, that I now refer, refer work, work to. And of course they were then referring work back to me. I, I don't know what it is, Peter, but I find that my in, inner sanctum of friends is probably occupied by three, four, five great lawyers from Adelaide. Mm. I think it's f- closely aligned with law and accounting. Oh, absolutely. They are, yeah, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. What about your relationship with the bank manager? Well, bank manager was very funny because um, I went in to see a, bank, a certain bank manager in Hutt Street in Adelaide and I went in to see him about a client uh, that he had. And he'd sent me a letter about this client. And I went in to say, well, this letter wasn't satisfactory. And he said, why isn't it satisfactory? And I told him, and he said, well, that's all right. I appreciate you coming to see me. Uh, I'll, I'll change it. And I said, thank you. I've got to go because I've got to go to an auction. And he said, what auction? And I said, oh, just an auction out at Kensington. And he said, well, wh- well, why are you going to that? And I said, well, I'm just going to have a look at it. I'm hoping it's going to be passed in. I'd like to buy it, but I haven't got the money at the moment. I don't even have the deposit at the moment, but I want to go and have a look and have it passed in that I can organise my finance. He said, right, come with me. And he followed me out to this particular auction. We stood together. He walked through and came out the other side. He said, you're lucky I'm one of the few bank managers that actually has the um, responsibility of putting reasonable values on properties for this sort of purpose. What do you what do you think you'd have to pay for it? And I said, I don't know. Uh, probably less than $300,000. And bear in mind, this was in 1986. And he said, well, I think 300000 would be a very good and a very reasonable buy for you. It started going to auction. I put my hand up a few times and eventually at 290000 um, I stopped putting my hand up. And uh, he turned to me, picked up my hand and put it up for, for me. True story. He did. True story. And finally, at 300000 we got it. One of the best buys I've ever had in my life. I then said, I don't even have a deposit to give to you at the moment. I was a bit short of money. The practice was, you know. And he said, I can fix that. Come with me. And um, went back to his office with the, consent of the, with the consent of the person running the auction. We said, we'll be back in half an hour. Went to his office, filled out a couple of forms. He gave me a... a, a, um, uh, and I, a my, my, bear in mind, I didn't bank with this bank. And he gave me a, an, a, 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 a check. Back I went, gave them the check, ultimately bought the property. Now that property we bought in 1986 for 200, it was actually 290, not 300,000. Well, it was 299,000. Right. And only sold it relatively recently after the bank had valued it 2.3 million. And again, you know, we don't have the property booms that... Uh, Sydney and Melbourne have, but we have a slow increase. And over a period of time, you'd have to be, if you buy property somewhere near the inside of the, of the, of the, of the capital, don't go way out in the Mulga. But inside and in, at a sensible price, you can't go wrong. Wow. And, I, and I'm not a real estate agent. Now, now, that property was a really special property. It was a beautiful, I remember, at a, at, um, well, We'll lead on to that, but I remember that it had a tennis court out the back and you yep. had tennis at your place every Tuesday or Wednesday night? Every Tuesday night for 35 years. And you had a handful of about five really good mates that would come around and play tennis with you. Yes. 
every Tuesday night yeah. and then you'd have a phone call well, it'd be text nowadays but are you available yes everyone would work out how many whether they had enough numbers who was playing and where you'd go that's right and Again, we, this yep. is a networking thing, isn't it? Absolutely. These are clients. We would then go down to, to Norwood Parade for, uh, and we'd pick a place where we have, would have dinner every time. After the game? After the game. Well, this would be quite late. Well, we'd start at five and we would go into the billiard room, which is a thing that I'd knock down a few walls in a cottage that was outside that was on the property and used to be used by the maids in, in centuries ago. And... Uh, I knocked all the walls down and we made it a billiard room, and which we have drinks there, and then we'd go down to Norwood Parade. This all went very well uh, until we had a bit of a problem on um, on the 15th of January, or was it February, can't remember, uh, in, in 1995, where Anne said to me, Peter, there's some smoke outside. I think somebody's got a problem. So I walked outside and went to look at all the other properties around the place. No no problem there. And I looked up at my own roof and, and there was smoke coming out of the eaves. The house burnt down. House burnt down. And I might say to you that um, this was fairly dramatic, naturally enough. We were trying... All the fire was in the ceiling. We we, I was asked, do you know anybody who's got trucks because we wanted to get all the furniture out all the furniture stage was going out onto the street all the neighbors were coming in taking things i thought we'll never see some of these again <laughs> and the bloke that i most doubted the bloke with tattoos and whatever he was the first one to walk in the next morning with all of the with all of the stuff it just t- taught me a lesson don't judge people by the way they look and sorry how did the fire start Fire started because there was a guy in the roof doing some repairs. He was cutting uh, some lead. Uh, he sliced the end of his finger off. Uh, I believe that he, or the, the assessor believed that he had a, a blowtorch that he was using to cut this oh, lead. Yeah. As his top of his finger went off and he's screaming and yelling and they believe that either that or a cigarette or whatever ignited all of the insulation. In those, in those days when this property was built in 1864, the insulation was seaweed. Well, of course, the seaweed took to the fire like a rocket and eventually the whole, the whole upside, the top of the house, underneath the eaves, underneath, sorry, underneath the roof, on top of the ceilings, was on fire. Eventually all the ceilings fell in. <gasps> um, and I remember going up with the, with the um, assessor Sometime later, with about nine rooms, didn't affect the very back rooms, but nine rooms, and it had been raining. And he said, congratulations, you're now the only property in Adelaide with nine swimming pools. <laughs> One other very quick thing to add on this, Adelaide's leading, uh, eating, leading electrical firm, the owner of it, um, who employed a 1,000 people that is in his Adelaide office, uh, I rang him to say, can you bring some trucks? We've got all this furniture. He brought all the trucks out and he took one look at it and he said, Peter, this is the best day of your life. I said, why? He said, you know, your property was, all their wiring had pretty well had it. The roof had used up 110 out of its 120 years. We got a completely new slate roof all the way across and all the wiring and everything else was redone right throughout the house. Would have cost a fortune, all paid for by the, by the insurance company. Unbelievable. It was a lucky day in my life. I can't believe that. I, I do remember that story. Wow. Now. Stop me if I'm talking to him. No. Your boys. Yep. Now, as you mentored me, you mentored them. They have moved on to uh, very important roles in their occupation. Jamie is uh, he's in the United States looking after investment banking, all of that sort of stuff. Chris is living in Singapore or Hong Kong. Singapore now. Singapore. Used to be Hong Kong. And he's a stockbroker over there. Well, uh, it's a merchant bank that he works for and his job is to handle for very large clients the share portfolios that they've got. So as they were little boys growing up, what did you say to them? What, how, Like, 
how do you feel? Did you did you used to tell them things like you can do anything you want, boys? You can be whatever you want. You're very intelligent. Um, the world's your oyster. What what sort of things can you remember that you sowed into their lives that had a massive impact on them? Well, I know what they told me and in later years had a massive impact. They both left school. They both did um, business degrees. They both got business degrees. And then they both wanted to do something in relation to shares. And I had a, a contact um, here. That contact spoke to both of them, sent one of them to Sydney. That's the older boy, Jamie. He spent a little while in Sydney. Uh, the younger one went into the Adelaide office of, a, of another firm. Uh, not very long after that, uh, I thought I'd take them to, to America. And so because I'd amassed a lot of frequent flyer points, you'll be interested to learn largely through lunches that I was having, <laughs> paying for them with credit cards and amassing all these frequent flyer points. I managed to have enough points to take them from Australia to the United States and all around the United States, Washington, New York, San Francisco, right down to the bottom, you know, everywhere, including Wall Street. And uh, they have later told me that that organised for them what they wanted to do with their lives. In particular, Jamie, who was fascinated by Wall Street, and he made the decision then that he loved Wall Street, he loved America, he loved the uh, place that we that we uh, stayed in, in uh, in uh, New York, which was in Times Square. Times Square never goes to sleep. Well, he was fascinated by all of this. Anyway, he made the decision that he wanted to uh, be in sharebroking and wanted to live in America, and has since done so, and has since told me that that was one of the the moments in his life that changed or created or, or reaffirmed what he wanted to do. When you were in Wall Street walking around, what what sort of stories were you telling them and what why was it so important for them? What Where, where did you take them there? What did you oh, do? We, 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 you're, allowed, you're allowed to go in there and watch the floor as it's... Uh, well, you were then. I don't know what the situation is now. I'm sure they'd have a lot more security these days. They had none in, the, in those days. And you were able to walk into the, the area where you, you can view what's going on and you can hear all the carrying on and all the yelling and screaming. Anybody who knows anything about it, about a, a, a Wall Street or that sort of operation would be well aware of the, the noise that goes on. He was just absolutely captivated by the by the noise and carry on. So we were up in a viewing platform yeah. watching down looking on the on yeah. the uh, yeah. on the trading floor yeah. and watching all of these guys go about their day to day operation. And, and and you were walking around outside looking at other interesting parts of Wall Street, or was it just mainly the just dealing floor? Well, that was the specialty. Wall Street is the specialty. So well known. Mm. Wall Street is, you know, famous throughout the world. But that changed his life. And as I say, he now lives, he's now bought himself a property in um, one of the main streets. It sounds terribly impressive. Can't even think of the street now. What are the Fifth Avenue. Oh, wow. He's bought a, a home, in, in, or he's bought a property. An apartment, a property. An apartment, it, yeah. Uh, he has two children. Uh, very happily married, and um, Christopher has done exactly the same sort of thing. He was lucky he went to London, and he progressed very quickly for whatever reason. Seemed to have the gift of the gab, I think, Christopher. Mm. And he he, he, um, he was on the African desk for a while, and then he was on this desk for a while, and then he was sent to Singapore, and he rang me in the middle of the night to say, Dad, I've been offered the job of actually managing this firm he was in his mid to late 20s managing this firm in in Singapore uh, and they've offered me the equivalent of $1.2 million in those days, $1.2 million and everything found for me to do it. And I said, well, why are you ringing me? <laughs> Say yes. And he said, I think I might be able to get a bit more out of them. <laughs> Rang me back to say $1.3 million was the figure. He went to Singapore, made a huge success of it. Then they sent him to Hong Kong. Uh, then he decided he wanted to change. So he became a, the, the uh, manager of, a, of uh, another um, firm in, uh, in Hong Kong. Um, just trying to think where it came from, never mind. But he successfully did that. And then he moved on again, another offer, and he moved on back to Singapore and lives in Singapore very happily with his, um, with his wife and two children. 
I remember him telling me one story. Oh, well, uh, that when he was trying to get promotions, he strategically p- placed himself in positions where the decision makers were going to be. For example, he didn't smoke. But if he knew the partner of his stockbroking firm was going up onto the roof to have a cigarette, he would go go out, buy a packet of cigarettes and go up there right? and smoke with him. Right? Now, no one ever has ever explained that to me about yeah. that sort of mindset, but sometimes that's what it takes. Yeah. He was, did I mention that he was lucky in Sydney, that he went to see his brother no. in that firm and decided he'd wear his suit? He went to see his brother in that firm. He walked out of there and thought he'd go and have a look at the Sydney office of his own firm in Adelaide, walked in, walked around, uh, introduced himself to a few people. As he was walking out the door, an, an elderly gentleman, beautifully dressed, walked in and said to Christopher, who are you? And he said, oh, my name is Christopher and I'm, uh, uh, I'm from Adelaide and I'm in your office in Adelaide. And, and for whatever reason, the elderly gentleman turned out to be the chairman of Australia for that firm Talked to Christopher for 20 minutes, Chris told me. Finally said, uh, as I said, Chris had the gift of the gab. Finally said to Christopher, have you ever thought of going overseas at some stage? And he said, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. And he said, where would you like to go? And Chris said, well, uh, preferably either New York, the United States or, or London. And he said, okay, which one would you prefer? And Chris said, well, I've got more friends in London. And he said, right, leave this with me. Christopher walked out the door, told me the story and said, Dad, nothing will come of it, but, you know. Two days later when he got back to Adelaide, he was called in by the manager there and said, well, I don't know how you've done this, but uh, for one way or another, we've had a call from the chairman and he's suggesting that you might, you might do quite well in our London office. Uh, are you prepared to go? And Chris said, prepared to go? <laughs> and that's when he went off to London and the rest, the rest is history. So over the years as a chartered accountant, you've had a pretty good lifestyle. And I remember that when I was running the, the office, you'd always have an overseas holiday in to Europe pretty well. Most years where you'd be over there for uh, three or four weeks, uh, enjoying their summer, avoiding our winter. And I remember that saying with this whole fitness theme that you would love nothing more than in the morning to wake up in some foreign city, say it was Paris. Yeah. And then go for a run around the streets and find out about the environment and get a real feel for the place. Is that what you said? Absolutely. Doing? You were. I remember one in, one in particular in the Philippines. We arrived in Manila, and uh, Manila is just a madcap place. And there are jeepneys. That's the, the equivalent of, of taxis here. There'd be jeepneys all over the place, and uh, we were able to actually run along. Uh, at times, you'd have to walk, but because we were fit, we could do it. And we would go out and we might go for 10, 20 kilometres, not, not running all the time, but taking your time, but running where you wanted to, walking where you wanted to. We could go to places you couldn't go in a car. And it was the most fabulous place for, for familiarising yourself with, with the overseas cities. And, uh, yeah, we did Rio and all sorts of uh, places that we did, largely helped by the fact that the we set up a system where we would organise the gym to... Uh, have 25 people or whatever uh, that wanted to go on an overseas trip, we would get a travel agency that, that we would create a good relationship with. They would organise it. It would be done under the name of our gymnasium and would get a free trip because just, by, just because of the connection. If she got more than 20 people, then she'd get a free trip. That's one of the reasons that we could quite genuinely go overseas and to some extent because of the connection uh, get tax deductions for a portion of it, and we did that regularly. The other reason was actually to go running at World Championships overseas, um, which again took us everywhere, all over the all over the world. Fantastic. So, but you like small business, um, pretty much. Your business would stop unless I was there. Uh, when you go overseas, now a lot of people would say that you're too busy or it costs too much money. Would you always just make room for holidays because you? enjoyed traveling so much or you felt that you came back reinvigorated or what was it that really appealed to you about the overseas holiday every year? Well, you begin to love traveling. Mm. Um, And when you, uh, there weren't very many trips that I didn't use frequent flyer points to pay my side of it. And uh, I've been to places all over the world um, that um, 
fabulous places all over the world that I've got fabulous memories of. And, I, and I, yes, I loved it. Secondly, I played a part in helping with the people, the 25 people from the, from the gym, to make sure they were okay. I played a you know part in running it for them. And so um, I just loved it. It was just fantastic. Good experience. Keeps you Even keeps you fit while you're away. And the stories you can tell from places we've been. But Have you got a favourite? Looking back, um, is there any inspirational book or person or quote or anything that you found over the years that you keep coming back to or that you reflect on and think was a played a major part in your life? Um, yeah, I think probably um, one of them was the one I've already told you about, which was Stuart Coburn oh, yeah. quote. Um, you know, amongst all the high priests of today's influential society, etc. Um, the other one was a quote from Sir Donald Bradman, who I still have to remind myself of what he said. His his um, line when he played cricket, his motto when he played cricket, which he then later carried on into later life, was never make the same mistake twice. And there is another person who has another famous person. Oh, I think it's went down to um, can't think of his name. The brainiest guy that's ever lived, according to everybody. But I can't remember his name. Um, he said, "It is amazing how many people who don't get the result they want that then do exactly the same thing again and think they're going to get a different result." I think that's a pretty good definition one. of madness. Isn't it? Is that what, is that, is that what I it think is? it is? And I remember something you said to me was like ninety-eight percent of your the things that you're worrying about will never actually happen. Yeah, and that that's I've always relied on that in a lot of situations. If you think things are getting on top of you, or if you had a bad day at the office or whatever, um, and and that's that's reassuring for me. So often the things that you go to bed and worry about all night don't happen. Mm. Another one, of course, is don't don't worry about the things that you can't control. And one that I said to Anne once, who came home one day absolutely distraught that she'd lost a client, and she, uh, this client had said that your, the problem with your gym is and this and that and something else. She said, I can't believe I was so disappointed. And I said, um, Anne, there's another rule you can, you can go by. You can fool uh, all of the people some of the time. You can fool, fool some of the people all of the time. But you can't fool or please or please all of the people all of the time. Mm. It's true. All right, Peter. Well, we need to wrap up so that we can go and have lunch, like the good old days. But thank you ever so much for being a part of this program and sharing your mind and your insight. And thanks for the the huge role model that you've been to me and the massive influence you've been on my life. Thanks, Peter. Well, you have no idea how much I appreciate you saying that. I sincerely do. I really appreciate that, um, uh, and I very much appreciate the opportunity to, to have this you know this uh, discussion with you today. Thanks, Peter.